Welcome to the Empire Builders Podcast, teaching business owners the not-so-secret techniques that took famous businesses from mom-and-pop to major brands. Stephen Semple is a marketing consultant, story collector, and storyteller. I'm Stephen's sidekick and business partner, Dave Young. Before we get into today's episode, a word from our sponsor, which is, well, it's us. But we're highlighting ads we've written and produced for our clients. So here's one of those. Meanwhile, at Seaside Plumbing, Lauren is teasing Josh about a joke gone wrong. Josh, why does your office door sign say that? What do you mean, Lauren? My door has my name on it. That's not your name, Josh. One of the plumbers put it up. They heard the story. You remember, don't you? I remember having to call the phone company to get them to change the caller ID for Seaside. Didn't think they took me seriously. It was a joke. So when you set up the business line for Seaside Plumbing, you thought it would be funny. Still makes me laugh. To tell the phone company that your alias was... Big Daddy Josh Martin. Do you know how long it took me to get Big Daddy out of the phone book listing? I remember. Thank you, Lauren. Seaside Plumbing, also known as Big Daddy Josh Martin. Okay, kind of funny now. I still regret not holding on to one of those old phone books. Seaside Plumbing has changed a lot in the last 20 years. But some things are still the same. I'm not calling you Big Daddy. In a sea of ordinary, choose extraordinary. Visit SeasidePlumbingInc.com. Licensed in Delaware and Maryland. Welcome back to the Empire Builders Podcast. Dave Young here alongside Stephen Semple and Steve. Stephen, you told me that we're, we're going back in time. We're revving up the time machine again to look at a brand that's been around, boy, a, a long time. I'm anxious to find out how long, because I know it was around in pioneer times, because when you read old books or Little House on the Prairie or look at an old you know Sears and Roebuck catalog, you could buy a Singer sewing machine. Mm-hmm. And Singer is the brand that we're going to talk about. It's sort of been synonymous with sewing machines for as long as I know. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, it was founded in 1851 in New York. There we go. By Isaac Singer. But while we still know about them today, they are not the force they used to be. Like, they used to mm. be huge. Like, so for example, when they built their headquarters, in New York. At the time, it was the world's tallest building. They had a massive building in Russia. They had a huge factory in Scotland. At the time, it was one of the largest factories in the world. They were, they were massive. And when Isaac Singer died in 1875, his fortune was estimated to be $14 million, which is over a billion dollars today in today's money. That's, that's in a period of 25 years or so, right? That's- right. That's amazing. Isaac Singer was born in 1811 near Shagnacock, and I'm butchering the name because it's one of these ones that's like an S and an H and a G and a T and an H and a K in Uh New York. And basically, it's in northern New York near the border of Vermont. Today, it's still a small town of only about 8,000 people. So I can't imagine how tiny it was back in 1811. At the age of 19, he's an apprentice to a machinist. And at the same time, he becomes a touring actor. He spent much of his life being a touring actor. He was married. He had a son. He moved to New York where he worked in a a press shop. But I got to say this, not a loyal guy. He went on tour again and married again. This happened several times. He had multiple wives who did not know about each other. This happened several times. (laughs) But this time he had an idea. He went and worked for a little while as a laborer clearing boulders on the Illinois-Michigan Canal. So he's clearing away rocks on the canal, and this gives him an idea 
to design and patent a rock drilling machine that he sold for $2,000. So he created this patent, designed it, sold the patent. And he used this money to set up another touring company. So he goes out touring again and he runs out of money. And eventually he's back in New York where he set up a shop making wood type signs and he patented a type cutting machine, you know, for those big wooden signs that we used to see. And Singer's landlord is a guy by the name of Orson Phelps was making sewing machines. And it Mm. turns out they were hard to make. They were not reliable. And there were lots of returns and unhappy customers. Singer was not getting any orders for his type cutting machine. So he takes a look at the sewing machines. It seems like there would be a lot more people that need to sew something than to cut signs. You would think. Yeah, yeah, you would think. That seems like a consumer market as opposed to business to business. <laughs> well, although at the time, a lot of sewing machines were sold to the textile industry. Yeah. But nevertheless, Singer suggests some improvements around the movement of the shuttle and the shape of the needle. He also suggests a foot treadle over a hand crank. So they mm. were, at this time, they were all hand cranks. And that was a huge change. So they worked together the two of them, so Singer and uh, Orson Phelps, to create a new sewing machine. At first, it was to be called the Jenny Lind Sewing Machine because Jenny Lind was this famous actress. So it was first to be called the Jenny Lind Sewing Machine, but by the time it got patented, it got patented as the Singer Sewing Machine. Oh, wait. She was a famous actress, and he was uh, a guy that put touring theatrical shows together. Yeah. Okay, so there's there's another story there somewhere. I'm sure there's another story there, but by the time <laughs> it was patented, it was patented as a singer sewing machine, which is also interesting given that Orson Phelps' name was nowhere on this. Yeah, yeah. Litigation broke out between them, and a patent pool had to be created for sharing the revenues from the patent. So once completed, there was no doubt that the singer sewing machine was a superior machine. It was more reliable, it was more portable, but despite being better, it failed to gain attention in the garment industry and they could not sell it. So this was actually initially, Dave, a business-to-business play. They yeah. couldn't sell it. The industry was very conservative. And Singer realized he needed to do something different. Now remember, Singer was an actor. So what he yeah. started to do was he became a pitchman. And he started to sell directly to consumers through demonstrations at carnivals, churches, and fairs. So to take it from an industrial machine into the hands of consumers, you've opened it up to sell it to millions of people instead of hundreds of people. Yeah. Yes. And demonstration. We've talked about this before. Uh Uh-huh. And because of his acting ability, he could stir up the crowd, he could be the pitch man, and that's what he did. This worked out well. So here's how things went. And again, there's an interesting lesson here. We've often talked about this. Things don't grow in a straight line. Uh So 1853, he sells 810 of them. Okay. Three years later in 1856, they sell 2,564. Three years later... 10,953. In 1867, over 43,000. Yeah. Okay. Seven years later, 262,000. 
So you can just see how the trajectory yeah. goes. In 1883, they opened the largest sewing machine factory in the world in Scotland, employing 12,000 people. This factory was big enough that they used this factory up until 1984. 12,000? Yes. Okay. 1904, they opened a huge facility in St. Petersburg, Russia. 1908, the 47-story Singer Building in New York, at the time the largest building in the world. By 1973, they were doing $2 billion in sales and had 120,000 employees. That's a pretty amazing story. Yes. Uh, the thing that makes this interesting to me is they made a better machine, and mm -hmm. they decided to sell it B2B, and it was not accepted. And they said, screw that. We're going to go direct to consumer. They went direct to consumer, and they did it first by demonstrations. Stay tuned, we're gonna wrap up this story and tell you how to apply this lesson to your business right after this. Nice one. Thanks. We should do this more often, man. I wish we could. And why can't we? It's my business. What about it? Thought everything was good. It was. Do I hear a but in there? Sales have started to flatten and we're down over last year. Oh. Can't figure it out. Tried a bunch of stuff. Putting in more time doesn't seem to make a difference. Yikes. It's frustrating. Have you spoken to Steven? Who? The host. From the podcast we just interrupted? No. Why not? I thought you were trying stuff. I am, but what's Steven gonna do? He'll work with you for free. You mean that starter session thing? Yep. I don't know. What do you have to lose? Not much, I guess. So, you gonna book one? Yeah, why not? Where do I do it again? I think you can do it right from this podcast. Cool, thanks. You bet. We really should do this more often. Golf more or interrupt this podcast? Over to you, Dave. Book your starter session on this podcast's website. Just visit theempirebuilderspodcast.com and click on Get Started. Let's pick up our story where we left off, and trust me, you haven't missed a thing. If you had the problem that his, that his partner did, where you had a, an inferior sewing machine and you couldn't get industry to buy it because they couldn't keep it working, and he made the improvements that made it a reliable piece of equipment, now you can go to consumers because otherwise you get buried by bad talk. I mean, I, not that there were reviews back then, but people knew each other. Yes. What an eye-opening thing to do is to take something that, that nobody's ever had. Nobody ever had a sewing machine in their house probably until Singer started selling these. Absolutely. So one of the first things they did is they created a catalog that was distributed out to consumers. And then in 1920, they started doing ads where they showed a stylish woman using a Singer sewing machine, mm -hmm. right? And they're also one of the first companies having direct sales reps. So they also put together sales reps. And they also did lots of things to reduce the friction and make it easier to buy. We often talk about this day, reducing the friction. They were one of the first companies to have an installment purchasing plan. Mm -hmm. They also developed a trade-in program. So you could bring back your old Singer sewing machine and buy a new one. They created elaborate showrooms in major cities, often having live demonstrations of yeah. sewing. They created classes where they taught people how to sew. Yeah. And they also did franchising. These guys were selling them every which way they could. Yeah. Yeah. But it was more than just building a better mousetrap. They built the better mousetrap. 
they did demonstrations to consumers. They did advertising to consumers. They created installment plans. They created trade-in programs. They had classes for teaching people how to sew to grow their market. So the other thing they did is they figured out, hey, if we teach people how to sew, we're growing the market. We often talk to clients about how hard it is to grow the market. If you have something that people just don't understand and don't know about, it's a heavy load to carry to grow the market, right? To get people to adopt something new. It's way easier to have something that's just a better mousetrap. Yes. Yes, it and, is. And has features that you can talk about that compare. But to to actually grow the category, man, it's a hard road to go, but they did it and they did it well. And also, they didn't do it in the early days. Like, they did it in the later days. And that's the other thing you have to think about is the growing the market happens when you've tapped your market out and you want to grow your market. They didn't start, like too many businesses start with, well, let's grow the market. You can't start there. You don't have the resources yeah. to start there. A sewing machine is a tool. Like I know I know some people that have a small school in Africa where they teach trades, but they only teach trades where you could actually, like if, if you owned a sewing machine and we taught you how to make and mend clothes, you could go out and run a little business in your town making and mending clothes for people. It's that level of machinery. It lets you either increase your own livelihood or make life easier for yourself, right? So when you think about consumers 100 years ago, either of those two things is, is a nice proposition, right? It's like if you, if you own a singer sewing machine, you're not going to pay as much for clothing. And maybe other people will pay you to make clothing or fix their clothing, mend their, you know, hem their dresses and their, and their pants and those kinds of things. I remember, you know, my mom making, I don't think it was, this, I can't remember what sewing machine she had. It wasn't a singer, but making clothes and mending clothes and the sewing, you know, with four kids and all that other stuff, you know, it was like making and the mending of this stuff happened a lot in the home. Well, and you think about um, not just the sewing machines themselves, and I don't know to the extent, I don't know what extent they were involved in all the ancillary things, but the proliferation of patterns and various threads and all the little things that you need to make, you know, zippers and buttons and specialty items that people would put into their clothes. Like none of that was, was like, unless you're making it yourself, that business wasn't as big as it ended up being because it followed Singer. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the other thing too is when you have an innovative new product or idea, I actually think it's often easier to get consumer adoption than industry adoption. And if you think about it, you know, if you're the company running a, a textile company, first of all, you got to replace all the machines. That's a bigger expense. And anytime you replace something, there's all the other headaches. I think it's easier to get consumers to try new things than businesses to try new things. And I think that's often underestimated, often underestimated. Yeah. yeah. I mean, could you imagine like in any big city where they're teaching uh, sewing classes, right? And and you're the person teaching, like you're, you're the woman that's in there teaching a sewing class, maybe going city to city, like that's the equivalent of a really popular Instagram influencer today. There you right? go. You were, that's interesting. So, yeah. so uh, th there were sewing circles and sewing clubs and, oh my gosh, we're having so-and-so come in to, to be our guest uh, teacher. It's like, oh, you were, you were like, that's social media without electronics, but I'm sure there were, there were famous oh, uh, I'm sure there at were. least in that world you know 
famous instructors in in that circle. Absolutely, and, there would uh, have been great observation. Yeah. Great observation. Yeah, really cool. So they created the the whole infrastructure for that to even happen. They did. They did. Yeah. Absolutely did. So they did a lot of really super innovative things and just ended up becoming, you know, a massive, a massive, massive empire. Yeah. You know, it's amazing. I, I look back to um, when I was a kid growing up in, in, in my, my parents' own uh, small radio station in a small market, 6,000 people in the middle of nowhere. And one of the most successful annual events that we put on like i've got pictures of me as like a five-year-old standing on the stage with my dad in front of you know uh, probably a thousand people was a cooking show they would bring in some professional cook and put them on a stage and uh it was a homemaker kind of thing and uh, it was amazing it was a a big event it was a social event and it was an educational event and i'm i i'm absolutely positive things like that happened around the the sewing machine as well sure they did right a whole community would get together to uh enjoy this and participate in it and and in fact i think the sewing machine company was probably one of the big sponsors of it right because it's the same thing it's homemakers yep yeah, absolutely. That's so, awesome. Really cool. Did the galloping gourmet ever go to your town? Uh, no, he did not gallop <laughs> uh, through Western Nebraska. Uh, <laughs> I just really dated myself with that reference. <laughs> <laughs> I think he stayed. He was already on TV by that time. So, uh, he, he had much bigger crowds than. than I yeah. thought you'd find that one interesting. It was, uh, you know, they did a lot of singer did a lot of cool stuff. Very cool brand. He died, what, before the turn of the century? Yeah, he died in 1875. But he had made a pretty big company by then, and it took off and became, became you know, even dominated bigger. the world. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Great story. Thanks for sharing that one, Stephen. All right. Thanks, David. Thanks for listening to the podcast. Please share us. Subscribe on your favorite podcast app and leave us a big, fat, juicy five-star rating and review. And if you have any questions about this or any other podcast episode, email to questions at the empirebuilderspodcast.com.